We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City on June 4th. We are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest. And then the final event, the Behind the Bangs Writing Workshop. I finally did it, put it together, put together this workshop because I wrote this book in many ways for younger me. And younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught. I wanted the gyms. I wanted I wanted the knowledge. I wanted the education. That's what I would have wanted. So I've decided I'm doing it. And in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn. 15 years. In my 15-year career as a TV writer and author and blah, 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 all the other things I've written, there are six things that I always use, and all of those are in this workshop. So if you have an interest in writing, sign up. All the ticket links are live today. Click the show notes. Click my Instagram. We are coming to a city near you, and there's going to be some meet and greets. I'll sign some copies of books. We'll give out more books, and I have uh, some pieces of merch that I'm taking on the road, and I'm going to give them out at the shows. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of badass female celebrities who have been torn down by tabloids, dissected by social media, and faced heartaches and triumphs and come out of it all even stronger. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I am a writer, comedian, and filmmaker. And this week we are book clubbing Mackenzie Phillips' memoir written in 2009 titled High on Arrival. This is a book that was one of the most intense reads of my life. It was both very difficult to ingest and also I finished it in a day. It's like a book that it really feels, um, for lack of a better word, given the content of this book, addicting. Um, I started the book in the afternoon. I couldn't put it down until it was 1 a.m., And I've given a lot of trigger warnings in this podcast before. So now I need you to add up every trigger warning I've ever given, put them all together, and that's the trigger warning I'm issuing now. I do not have enough warnings for you, but if you are in the right headspace for this, I think it's a really important book, a really beautiful message, and personally, I love dark memoirs. I love when people get dark and share their truth. And this book does it in spades. When I got the call that Orange is the New Black was interested in hiring me, you know, it's Orange is the New Black. What are you going to do? Say, no, I'm a counselor now. I can't do that. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Yeah. But when I found out that it was someone that, that struggles with, you know, a serious, you know, using problem, I was even more excited about it because, uh, you know, uh, spoiler alert, Barb gets sober. Okay, before we dive into it all, I am so excited to introduce my guest, 
Tammy Sager. Hi, Tammy. Hi. <laughs> you just heard my intro and she had her head in her hands. Well, because I was the one who suggested it. I'm so glad you did. Okay, before before we get into it, I want to give your bio. Tammy is a writer and actor. She has written on so many things. I can't list them all. 30 Rock, How I Met Your Mother, Orange is the New Black, Shrill, Russian Doll, girls. She's also been in so many things, most recently High Maintenance, Search Party, and The Babysitter's Club, where memes of Tammy went viral from The Babysitter's Club to like describe 2020, and I'm going to post them all when I post the podcast. And Tammy is currently in London. We're doing the podcast. I'm in LA. She's in London. Um, Can you tell people what you are working on now, or is it a secret? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm writing on the show The Great with um, Elle Fanning and Nicole. And by the way, I do feel like I need to say me going viral. That meme is like 600 people <laughs> liked it, which for me is 100% viral. I feel like it went viral. And here's the thing. I saw memes of you not on your page. Like other people posted them and I <laughs> saw them, which means they went viral. Nice. Um, and uh, the, the show you're working on is so great. And so... I introduce all my guests with the story about we first met, and I love that I get to tell this story because this used to be a story I would put in one of my most embarrassing moments category, <laughs> and now it's moved over to the story of how we first met, um, but at the time, it was something I cried for three days over, so... What? I know. Tammy, you can... I feel like you don't even fully know because I haven't even fully told you, but jump in with how you remember this. Okay, so... Okay. Tammy is a Second City alumni. She performed on the main stage in Chicago. And what happens uh, at the Second City is that when you perform, you also write all your own material. You know, it's very collaborative. But Tammy always had just the best scenes and the best roles for women with the most jokes. And I also went to the Second City after Tammy. And when you're coming up, they have you perform alumni material. And it's this weird thing where you like go through DVDs and you look for scenes that you can perform of, of people who came before you. I was always performing Tammy scenes or begging to perform Tammy scenes or begging to have Tammy's role because it would always be the funniest, best, coolest, most feminist role. So Tammy, I was like obsessed with your work. I'd followed your career. And one day me and my former writing partner, uh, we, for, we, we'd worked really hard and we, we had this like a uh, loose TV pitch set up and we were also writing freelance jokes, um, at an advertising firm at the time. Um, and our boss, Sue, who's just the most wonderful woman in the world. Sue Gillen. Sue Gillen. You gotta give her the full name. Uh, really? Yeah. I didn't know if she would true. want a full name drop, but Sue Gillen is just such a dream. And we were working for her and <laughs> well, we're literally both just going to say amazing things about her. So let's, let's give it the drop. <laughs> let's give it the drop. I mean, just so, yeah. So we were working for her and she, uh, we had asked for this day off for this TV pitch coming up. And on her own, she said she could just kind of recognize, like, you're very young girls who probably don't know what you're doing, which was very true. That's part of the story. And she was like, let me call my friend Tammy Sager. And during work, I'll put you in an office uh, and you guys can talk to Tammy about this TV pitch. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Tammy Sager. You know, and also, like, you know, we're supposed to be working. And she set up this call. It was so cool. So. Me and my ride partner, we get on this call and Tammy is like coming in from picking up groceries and she's like kindly given us her, now that I'm in the business, I'm like, I can't believe you did this for us. You know, I'd be like, what? Tammy's going to be on the phone with us. And she says, okay, what's this show of yours? And we really didn't know what we were doing at the time. And we started to try and pitch the show to Tammy and it 
was horrible. It was horrible. And Tammy was so nice, but she was like, okay, I, I, I think we can find something in there. But like you were someone I wanted to impress so badly. And we really didn't. When we hung up, I sobbed. I cried about this for like oh three gosh. days. Oh my gosh. I know. So years later, I'm dating Yasser and you and Yasser wrote on girls together and you're close friends. And he said, you have to meet my close friend, Tammy. And I said, Tammy Sager. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, cool, cool. Um, so we go to dinner and I'm like praying you won't remember that I'm the girl from this call. Like I'm trying not to talk about Second City. I'm trying not to bring up anything. Your prayers came true. Um, and um, uh, yeah. And then and then we became friends. Well, I don't know if you remember this. Yasser blurted it out at the dinner. He was like, yeah, Chelsea, yeah, talk no, to you on the I phone. Do. And I was like, Yasser, shut up. No, here was my takeaway from that. Sue Gillen is one of my absolute best friends, and I admire her so much, and I respect her taste so much. And when she speaks highly of somebody, it's like a stamp of approval that means everything to me. And you guys had the biggest stamp of approval. Oh. Like, so that's what I remember from that. Oh. And like, Ooh. in terms of like a pitch being green or whatever, it's like, how the hell are you supposed to? I didn't know how to pitch until I pitched. And yeah. like, well, it was the biggest gift that we did eat shit with you because if we had it, we would have done it with the network. You know what I mean? Like yeah. someone has to tell you how to pitch and that information's not readily available. No, it's a hundred percent not available. And so, yeah. So there was no like, whoa, why did Sue set me up with them at all? I just remember. <laughs> yeah. So there was no, so my takeaway when Yasser said that was just like, oh my God. Well, so also I adore Yasser. He's like a brother to me. Like we, he's really wonderful. And so the fact that he wanted me to meet you was humongous. It was like, who is this special woman? And he, the way he described you, I was like, you sounded really cool. And then when (laughs) he mentioned that, all I remembered was you had Sue's stamp of approval, which is not given loosely. So I was like, oh my God. Yasser, you're dating like an incredible quality chick. Like, so that that was, yeah, there was no part of me. It was like, so the fact that I made you cry for three days. Oh, you didn't make me cry. My own, um, my own desires to be like, you know, I wanted to be Tammy Sager level to Tammy Sager, but like, you can't do that when you're starting out. And I do want to share it because I think, you know, uh, I'm sure people have been in this position before with other people, you know, where you're so embarrassed, <laughs> but the the fact that like we're friends now and you didn't even really remember the details of it is just like, so lovely. I a hundred percent don't remember. I, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I don't. Hell yeah. And also, didn't you guys end up selling a script? Um, like, didn't it end up working out so well? You know what? It is actually a crazy story that we don't fully have time for. But yes, but it it was, um, yes, we ended up selling it, but not because the pitch was good. It's it's such a long story. I'll tell it one day if someone asks for it. But um, you told me to read this book and to look up nothing. And you're like, don't look into it. Just, just read it cold, which was such a great tip. I'm so glad I did. What made you pick this memoir when I told you I was doing a memoir podcast? I'm not a huge memoir person, just period. Not just even like celebrity memoirs or whatever. I just, just any, I don't know what it is. I don't even particularly like nonfiction. I just, (laughs) yeah. I don't know. It's it's the same where you, we we did this show at UCB, Ask Cat, you've yeah, done yeah. it or Armando, whatever. And anytime 
where you have this monologist and they, you know, suggest they get a suggestion. Anytime it started with like when I was growing up, when oh. I was eight years old, oh. or I was when born, I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. And so every fucking memoir is like, I was born. Like that's yeah. Yeah, I, so I'm yeah. already out. I've called them description collages where like someone just describes their life and you're like, who I wouldn't listen to this at a bar if I was drunk. I'd be like, stop describing your life and like tell me a good story. <laughs> yes. And this one got such huge it was huge in the news when it came out. She was on Oprah. There was this like yeah. huge bomb drop. Um and I don't, and I remember reading that it was very well written. Yeah. And the co-writer for it, Hillary Lifton, I think I read something of hers besides this. And I was like, oh, I'm going to check this out. And I did. And it's crazy shocking. But because I knew the big secret, actually reading all the rest of it made it easier to metabolize, if yeah. you will. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I should tell everyone for this um, podcast, so my uh, my showrunner Barbie introduced me to Hillary Lifton because she was like, oh my gosh, Hillary writes memoirs. And Hillary did an interview on this podcast that's, that we're going to drop soon. And I said, oh my gosh, we're going to be doing one of your books. And loved Hillary. Her insights were incredible. I can't wait for that interview to come out. But I just want to fully agree, like it is so well written because because of the content, it sh- this book should be impossible to read. Um, and I read it in a day. And the, I feel like the content overshadows how well written it is because it's so easy to read, but it has depth and grit. And and I mean, yeah, it is, it is stunningly well written, even though you're not really paying attention to the writing. But the the blurb on the top is from Augustine Burroughs, who is, he wrote Running With Scissors. And I guess that is sort of a, it is a memoir, yeah. but it was, he, he talked about somebody who has a great story to tell. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the blurb is about how he read this in one night and, and just rich with compassion, forgiveness, and wisdom. Yeah. It's a brave memoir executed with an unwavering loyalty and commitment to truth. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, which is amazing. So anyway, so I, I read it at the time and remember being like really rocked by it. Yeah. And then seeing that you love celebrity memoirs, I was like, oh, so of course you've read this. And you're like, I don't know who that is. I don't know this <laughs> book. And I was like, oh, wow, you definitely. And I think this was even pre-podcast. I was like, it you got to read it. I was like, whatever you do, don't. I don't know why I was like, it'll be fun for you to be completely <laughs> shocked because <laughs> it had also been years. But I was like, wow, this would have been impossible for you to be shocked by. So I was like, this is great. You're, uh, I can't wait until you're shocked by it. And uh, yeah. And then when the podcast happened, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so excited to do this book with you. Yeah. Because also I have not picked it up in over 10 years. Yeah. And you need so to then- remove like <laughs> feeling bad that you brought this book up. And, and I want to I'm going to tell listeners what you're you, there's a lot of trigger warnings, but the big one is going to be for incest. That's going to be um, a big part of this book. And I, I'm so happy. I'm so because some people message me. They're like, why are you doing this one? Like, weren't we just discussing <laughs> Mariah Carey? But. I think this is a really, really, really important book, and it is going to be a darker podcast episode. And before we dive in, I want to just let everyone know this is going to be an imperfect conversation. The topics covered in this book are really intense. I am not an expert in them, and I, I, but I really want to have a real and authentic conversation about the book. So if I use the wrong word or make a point that misses something, I really encourage you to hit up the Facebook group, Celebrity Book Club Podcast on Facebook, and uh, start the discussion. I welcome enlightenment from the cookies. That's our book 
book club named Tammy. It's the scene from Celebrity <laughs> meets Bookie Cookies. I love um, it. Because when I was doing the Instagram recap, I typed out that Mackenzie had gotten clean. And one of the cookies reached out and let me know, like, that word is actually stigmatizing because it insinuates the opposite of that is dirty, that, like, addiction makes you dirty. I didn't know that at all. And so uh, I love evolving, learning. That's why I love the book club. You know, it's just, like, all these smart, insightful women being like, I actually work, you know, in rehabilitation. This is better language. So, anyways, if I misspeak, let me know. Um... I'm not super well-versed in addiction and recovery, which is also part of this book. I have gone to OA and Al-Anon meetings, but I blacked out a lot of them. So I don't have a lot of the language. Oh, I thought you were going to be like, I went in blackouts. I went. Um. <laughs> yeah, I would blackout and go to meetings. No, I went to meetings and then uh, had an emotional blackout. But um, I'm so excited that Tammy, you're a guest because I know you have so much insight and knowledge to bring to this. And I'm excited to just dive in. Well, and I also feel like in terms of getting stuff wrong, she wrote this memoir about what really happened in her life. And then there's this amazing postscript in it yeah. where it's like, hey, I use this word consensual and for these reasons, because I didn't know how to describe. And because this came out, so many experts came forward and explained to me how it could never have been consensual. Yeah. And like, and and in addition to that, so many other victims came up to her and she's part of a community now. And so her courage in talking about it and also in getting it wrong, as it were, actually it didn't matter because she still got the grace of that happens with honesty. That's such a great point. And yeah, the best part of this book is that a postscript, a postscript is added two years later from what she learned about putting the book out. And my book didn't have it. So Tammy sent me pictures. Thank you, Tammy. And the postscript is like one of the best parts of, of the whole book, I felt. Yeah, I wish it were in all the books now. I mean, I guess it is yeah, now. Yeah, it is but now. But if you, got, if you got a used copy like myself, I got, I got a first <laughs> edition 2009. Okay, so let's start. I want to start by reading okay. a paragraph uh, that's within the introduction. It is time to sort out a life that too often I left blurry, unprocessed, unreal, hoping in doing so I would be leaving it behind me forever. It is time for me to return to that life, to face it, explain it, accept it, and let it rest as the insane, fun, ridiculous, terrifying, and true sequence that led a bright, goofy, famous little girl to a bleak jail binge. And I want to do it right so that it is real and whole, and I, in turn, become real and whole." So beautiful and talking about facing, facing your life and how you can't be the whole person you are if you're blocking some of that life out as she was doing as, as we all sometimes do. Yeah. hundred percent. Mackenzie is best known for, for anyone who doesn't know, cause I didn't, I didn't put it together who she was. Now I realize I absolutely knew who she was, but Mackenzie Phillips is best known for being Um, The Young Girl in American Graffiti, she was one of the daughters in One Day at a Time, which was, has been rebooted, but she was in the original One Day at a Time. And um, years later, she is the mom on the Disney show So Weird, which a lot of people only know her from that show and not from One Day at a Time, uh, you know, which is like what really made her famous. But she was, um, she was battling her addiction on One Day at a Time and she was in remission on So Weird. So it's like almost two different people. And she's the daughter of John Phillips, who is of the band The Mamas and the Papas. He wrote California Dreaming, Monday, Monday, among many others. And their family tree is insane. The amount of people in this book who are people you will recognize 
it extends out to, uh, it's like her sister, her half-sister China is married to a Baldwin, which then links this family also to the Biebers. <laughs> yeah, and China herself. Yeah, Wilson Phillips. She's at who are, she's with the two daughters of Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. Yeah. And, yeah. and Carney Wilson has a book that I hope to do one day. <laughs> nice. Um, okay, so Oh, and Bijou that, Phillips yeah. is another sister, sorry. Yes, uh, no, Bijou is going to be a big part of this book. Um, yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Also how all the siblings are, most of them are like half siblings, Mm -hmm. but there's no, I don't think she ever says the word half. Like it feels very much like they're all part of the same crew because they all had this huge father presence. Yeah, you're right. He really linked them all together. And I, yeah, I used to never say half my brothers and my half brothers because our mom is just our central linking force. But then I sometimes found it helpful in like explaining, explaining my life, you know, but yeah, it's just like siblings are siblings. And she, um, she, she barely goes into, cause there's other siblings that we haven't mentioned yet either, who are also from different right. parts of, of different marriages. Yeah. And I think the reason it, it does kind of matter with the half in this case is because this man really did collect like there just there's such a wreckage of lovers and partners in yes John Phillips uh, life and, is, and children throughout yeah and i will say uh without judgment uh, many of the family members are you wreckage could be used like a lot of them have gone through really intense awful things or have enacted intense awful things on other people and they're all kind of stemming from this man who was the head of the clan yeah um okay so let's dive into it her dad leaves her mom for a 16 year old girl named michelle and michelle becomes her stepmom for a period of time and but Michelle stays throughout her life, like even when her dad well, moves on. It's not just a girl, Michelle. It's Michelle Phillips, who is one of the four people in Mamas and the Papas. So it was Mama Cass and Michelle Phillips. Yeah. Oh my God. You're so right. But it so she was and, and she became a huge like actress afterwards. Like this woman. The thing is, is like, yeah, because she is Michelle Phillips of of the band, but she's also a 16-year-old girl. You know, it's like yes. so yes. and I think the press at the time is like, oh yeah, he's, you know, he left the her her, her mom for um, a woman in the band. But like, no, this was a 16 year old girl. Oh yeah. And also it was also around the time where like, there's the songs where it's like, you're just what 14 yeah. oh, my and beautiful. God. You know she what I mean? Was just like really 16. creepy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Whereas like n- no one really blinked an eye. And the cool part is that Michelle is going to remain in Mackenzie's life. Yeah. And she's China's mom. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I love that you've you've got the family tree on lock, which is good because I don't. So please, (laughs) please pipe in. So what's truly troubling is that her mom works at the Pentagon as a single mom. And and like the early part of Mackenzie's life is really put together and her mom's this great woman until her dad convinces her to briefly reconcile give up her job at the Pentagon, move to California. Then he leaves her again, and she gets into a relationship with a really, really violent man named Lenny. And then her mom starts abusing drugs and alcohol, or I think just alcohol herself. And her mom is no longer a stabilizing force in Mackenzie's life. And more, it really escalates into the point where, like, Mackenzie's taking care of her mom at some points. I mean, literally also at the end of her life but Lenny drives out so there's these two siblings right Jeffrey or Jeff Jeff. and Mackenzie and Lenny just really basically 
completely destroys the family stepdad big stepdad energy he comes in makes the siblings (laughs) life so much hell that they leave and go and live with her dad yeah and beats the shit out of the moms to the point where like there's a she talks about a tiger beat photograph (sighs) with her mom where her mom is hiding a broken arm yeah, behind, broken McKinsey's behind McKinsey's back. back. And her, her, she has makeup under covering up her black eyes so that she and McKinsey can be in Tiger Beat. Oof, so dark. So this is how McKinsey ends up, you know, at her dad's house, who has money, who has a mansion, who's a rock star. And it's like this crazy, it's like a fairy tale, but it's also party culture. There's no rules. There's wild stories that we are skipping for time. Where, like, Paul McCartney and her, like, fall asleep in a hammock at the top of a party. Like, the hammock gets raised to the roof and they sleep in a hammock (laughs) above the party when she's a kid. Yeah, she's five years old. I mean, I have to say, that was the part of the book where I was like, where do I get one of these fucking hammocks? Like, (laughs) how do I get that? I want that. Um, So, she books American Graffiti and... Later, she's like, yeah, and I lived with these two nice people. And later in her life, they're like, yeah, that's because you showed up to the airport alone. Like, we came to pick you up to be in the movie, and you were just a 10-year-old child with no parent. And so then you lived with us. It wasn't like it was arranged. They just put her on a flight to San Francisco. And And just hoped for the best. So that really explains her. And... Then I want to read, um, I want to read many pages of this book, but page 27, I felt really explains what's about to happen in the rest of the book. What do you expect to happen if you teach your child to roll joints at the age of 10? How will she turn out if she is free to pilfer the lesser of your personal pharmacy? Who will she be if she is left to find her way among adults who are lost or hell-bent on losing themselves? My father didn't think about the consequences. He thought he was having fun. But to call it fun is to oversimplify the hunger and loss and anger that drove his relentless commitment to oblivion. And in that muddle of emotions, it was passed from father to daughter. As I grew up, there was something more powerful and formative at play than the irresponsible example my father set. I desperately wanted to be close to him. I needed him. I did what he did and said what he said. Of myself, I wasn't enough. I couldn't just be. So her dad creates this push and pull with her of his love and his energy and his time and then also teaches her about drugs and gets her on drugs uh, when she's 10. Yeah, no, she, I, I, yeah, she, he has drugs everywhere. And she's like, the only time she got in trouble for doing acid is because she did like, she did his like rare acid. Outsleep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like the one time, but she would go, she also went to like a really, I was going to call it hippy dippy. I don't even know what the words for it are. Waldorf school. Yeah. And she's like, she smoked in fifth grade because it was allowed. Yeah. You were allowed to smoke cigarettes. I just can't imagine seeing fifth graders smoke <laughs> I and mean, be like, yep, that's part yeah, of the rules. Because the rule was um, come to class if you want to. And so if you didn't want to go to class, you <laughs> just didn't go. And that was the school. Um, so I think hippy dippy is the right word. Yeah, I think that was accurate. And she ends up sending her son there. What? Even though she's she's sober. No. She's like, those were like the happiest days. Was, no. Yeah. Okay. She did. I don't like that. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, you know, so, you know, learning and growth takes time. Um, Her her son uh, does seem to to be a great dude, so it doesn't feel like that totally messed him up. But hey, who knows? He he could write a book one day and we will find out. Um, So what really hit me in this book, Tammy, and I want I want to know your take on this, is that she's wildly honest, so vulnerable, but I couldn't feel or hear her soul in this book, like the deeper, thoughtful soul. 
um, I felt like I was reading, like, this is crazy, and the details are there, and the events are there, but I couldn't, like, feel a deeper spirit. Did you feel that, or was that just me? No, I, you know, we, I think we even texted about this, like, there is something disassociated yeah. about how she talks about stuff, and she even says, like, it feels like looking at another person. Yeah. Um, but also, all through it, and Augustine Burroughs calls it forgiving, but there's also seems to be a fear in being really angry. Yeah. And it also just seems like you couldn't there it again, it really feels tied to the dad where she talks about this. Like nobody ever just broke up in that family. The women came back and left. There was just no boundaries and stuff. And so I think I don't know, if to feel like somebody's not in touch with their anger. Yeah. Or if it really feels like she turns any anger she has back on herself really fast. Like it's really like when she talks, there's at some point where she's on one day at a time, you know, and she just lost, she's already, she's a very thin woman naturally. And then when she was on these really hardcore drugs, she got, you know, um, really cadaver like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was talked about. And then she came back, she, she got let go from the show and came back and, you know, she's a fucking kid. You know, she got on the show when she was, like, what, 15? And yeah. so she's let go, and she's, whatever, 18, 19, and came back a couple of years later. She's sober, and she'd gained some weight. And this fucking Hollywood director, who knows her, he's the director for every and, single and show. And knows that she went through drug addiction, and that's why she was thin. Yeah. 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 And just was like, yeah, you can't sit on the couch like that. It said it in front of everybody. On, on the intercom, he said that used to be cute, but now you're fat. Yeah. And, yeah. And... Even in that anecdote, she's like, but I put him through hell. And it was like, you were a kid. And yeah, you put him through hell a few years ago. Yeah. And now you were completely at his mercy. That was a real pig thing to do. That's a really good point. She's not in touch with her anger. I want to talk about forgiveness at the end when she gets to it. But yeah, yeah. the forgiving nature of the book was probably the hardest. Uh, it was hard. That was, That is what made it hardest for me to read. But then it really came around for me at the end. I will say I and and it's tough to talk about this because you can't you can't diagnose someone from a book. You also can't diagnose someone when your degree is in uh, celebrity memoir PhDs as mine is. <laughs> uh, I have no knowledge or skills, but. Mackenzie wrote this paragraph. It hit me so hard I couldn't even put it in the Instagram story, but I'm going to I'm going to include it in this podcast. I remember a lot of the major events in my life like this, as though I watched the moment instead of experiencing it. Maybe it's a side effect from years of drug use. Maybe I dissociate because it's easier for me to digest my life from a distance. Maybe I create memories from stories I've been told, or maybe I'm just insane. So, I I I saw that and I I actually sent a picture of it to my therapist. I've gotten more bold, I've started texting her. <laughs> I hope she doesn't fire me, but I was like, uh, this really hit me hard because that's often how I feel when I talk about growing up. And I didn't uh, use drugs uh, like that. I did use drugs, but I didn't use drugs to this to this degree. But the clarity mixed with the insanity mixed with the fog is something I intensely relate to. And my therapist said that is how that's just a very common side effect of trauma. And so while I'm not diagnosing uh, Mackenzie in the book, it really, really her trauma really hit me. And and, and the disassociation and the, from the disassociation. it, you know, like I think it's such a beautiful description of disassociate. Just whatever. Disassociating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, but yeah, I, I and and so 
it's funny, like I feel her spirit, but there's a lot of really hurtful things that happened to her. Yeah. And I think it's hard to feel like it's been completely processed when it gets listed off and then in the same breath she is seeing their side of it. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like literally in the same sentence. Well, and yeah, like one of the things that really hit for me is that um so I I found out a while ago that I'd been living with CPTSD, which was I it was very positive to find this out because before that, I thought it. I thought these. I thought things were my personality that were actually symptoms. <laughs> symptoms were presenting as personality, and once I found out about it, I was like, "Oh, this is great because that means you can heal it, and it's not just like y- your brain forever." Um, and I, if someone would have asked me about my life, I would have been like, "Yeah, it's fine. This happened. This happened." But like, you know, you you move on, and and I would say devastating things like that. Da, 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 da. And. I never would have said I was dissociating. I had a stand-up joke about disassociation for years before I sat down at the office and she was like, do you realize you're dissociating almost every, almost all the time? And the best way I can describe um, coming out of that and realizing that's what your brain's been doing and like trying to uh, not do it as much is that it feels like you wake up and you're driving a car and the car is going 150 miles an hour and you're at the wheel and you wake up in the middle of this car speeding down the road and you're in control and you look behind you and realize you've already driven um, thousands of miles. But you kind of don't yeah. remember. You kind of remember how you got there. And all of a sudden you're in control of this car that's like speeding down the road. That's what it That's what it felt like um, to me. And I realized um, through therapy that like I thought I was really strong because I could just say things. I forgive them and I'm good and I'm good and I'm good and I'm good. But actually, you're closer to healing when you can feel the emotions that that are connected to the events. Like you can feel your anger, your sadness, your pain when you talk about the event. Because if you can just talk about it with no emotion the way she does in this book, you're likely not being present in your feelings. It's funny because I, I think she's there's definite emotion there, but... And maybe it's just that I can't handle the lack of anger, you know? Possibly, but I also felt it. The thing is, like, the forgiveness stuff is going to be really cool, but I— and again, you can't diagnose someone, but it did feel like this book was written from a distance. And also, she says herself, I feel it from a distance. I don't feel the events. She constantly calls herself the feel-no-evil monkey. Like, she just never takes anything in, and she alludes to that. And it just—I think, given what she went through, it's impossible to say— that she didn't, she does not have traumatic side effects. She didn't go through trauma. And, um, but I thought that book, I thought it was really interesting. It's really hard to describe that type of trauma in your brain. And I think she accidentally, not accidentally, but I think she really describes trauma brain very well. Yeah. Oh, and I love your description just now of the car because it also encapsulates what sounds like an amazing coping mechanism. Yeah. You, (laughs) you were shut down and shut out but you also drove thousands of miles. Oh my God, Tammy, that's so beautiful. Yeah, you drove, but yeah, like what if you want to move away? What if you need to move away? And I'm stealing this from my therapist, but like trauma brain is um, a beautiful thing. Your brain says you will not survive if you feel this, experience this, know it, remember it. So I'm going to take it away from you so that you can keep going. And that's how you keep going sometimes. And- um, the other thing she says to me is that memories will come back to you when you're ready for them. And yeah. I now experience this all the time. It's actually awful. <laughs> but, 
months. You're like, maybe I'm not yeah, ready, like, brain. Yeah, like, actually, no, thank hey, you. But, um, you know, we're just suddenly it comes back and you're like, this is hell. And she's like, it's because you're ready for it now. And part of it, too, is I think especially she was so fucking young. She had, so right, young. she had no agency whatsoever. She had no, she was... I mean, she was like left alone all the time. Constantly. She talks about like raised, um, raised by wolves, let alone the horrible things that were done. And if you are completely present for that, but there is a point where you do have power and where you are an adult and where you can get yourself out of a dangerous situation that as a child you are unable to. And that's when it no longer suits you to be blacked out from your own life. Absolutely. And so she... Uh, Yes, everything happens when she's so, so young. So some more intense things. Mackenzie is raped when she's 14. Um, oh, no, younger. Oh, really? Sorry, I'm just going to... Oh, yeah, her first time she has sex, I mean, she doesn't... Oh, she doesn't as, call it rape, but when you read it, you're like, you were raped. Yeah, she was 12 and at a party and the cute guy, just the one time he talked to her, had sex with her in a closet. And never speaks to her again. No, there was just a horrible kidnapping rape. Yeah, so the one I'm referring to is then at 14 when she's yes. hitching a ride home with two friends and the guy tells her two male friends in, in the back, like, can you get out of the back of the car and check the gas cap? I think it fell off. And when they get out, he speeds away and they try and drag her out of the car and she's halfway out of the car and halfway in and he speeds off with her, parks, and that's where the rape occurs. And even when she's 14, the way she's describing trying to get out of it, I was like... It had just so much wisdom, you know, I don't, to, yeah. even the way she was trying to. Because he was saying he was going to kill her. And I yeah. think he had a knife, yes, too. It did. was just horrifying. Horrifying. And and he kind of just pushes her out of the car and she makes her way back home. She's already been in a movie at this point and And the, the boys who were with her had run and gotten help. And so everyone knows about this happening. But... That's, you know, it's a small part of the book. The, really, literally, the next page is is actually the page I want to read where, again, she's not going to say it's rape, but she says, um, there are many of these boxes, unprocessed memories, sealed up and set aside. Sometimes they climb out unexpectedly. A night at Anthony Kiedis's father's house when I was 13 or 14, I was with some older friends who instructed me to have sex with a 45-year-old actor. He told me what to do and how to do it. I was scared. He seemed like an old man. In the morning, he insisted that I make the bed. He said, tuck the sheets in tight. I want to bounce a quarter off the bed. To this day, I don't know why they told me to do it. It's a memory that bears no connection to who I am today. And so it feels like it happened to somebody else. I was there. I watched it happen to me. But I didn't let myself live the experience. And again, it's she's protecting so many people in it. But oh, yeah. even then, there's no anger at the 45-year-old actor who's having sex with the 13-year-old. Also, you could say that man's name. You could put his name in this book, and she doesn't. Yeah, no, and she could. Yeah, it. it's... Yeah, the monstrousness yeah. of it that she didn't recognize, but also recognizes enough to be like, that was fucked up. I don't know why they told me to do that. But yeah. Yeah, but it's it, that's the, that's what this book is. It's constant emotional daggers. It's like my dad getting me on drugs, my my mom's relationship, this rape, this rape, this rape. Like that's and, the and my book father's cadence. fucking memoir, where if you look up my name in the index, it's like Phillips, comma, Mackenzie, rape of on this page. You yeah. know, like, it's just it's, an index of which her is trauma. 
awful. And, and that's life. what she she calls it out at the beginning of the book. She's like, I read this index in his book. And I was like, I am not <laughs> these bullet points. I'm going to yeah. tell the story, which I love. And But I mean, yeah, th- that's why the book is so difficult to read. So many things happen. Her dad's leaving her alone all the time. Um, then there's like a story where She's in London with her dad and Keith Richards, and she's crawling on the floor trying to help them find bits of heroin or coke to do. And then they tell her, like, we're going to run out and get more drugs. We'll be right back. And they leave her alone in the flat for three days. And somehow this is also the type of place they're in because she's in the flat waiting for her dad to come back and all the power goes out. So she's in a flat without any power for three days when she's 16. And she's just constantly waiting for her dad's attention. And that's her childhood. What's wild, too, is she was 16, but already a working actress. So I didn't, she was like, there was no food. I was like, why didn't you go outside? Like, you know what I mean? But I think there was a real fear of not being there when her dad finally came back again. There was such a craving and it's a craving from all the kids for, and you can just, he's a megalomaniac narcissist. And I think when his light shone on you, there was nothing brighter. And it's evidenced even like by his insanely famous friends, you know, that I think this man offered something that was incredibly compelling. Yeah. And I mean, maybe this is a cheap comparison. I hope not. But I love the show Succession. And I feel like that it's a similar um, dynamic of like, there's one man's love and you all have to fight for it. And there's not enough love for you as a child and how that can lead you to do heinous acts. Yeah. And I think succession, except this guy's not a businessman who's half loathed by people. This guy's like a huge beloved, beloved musician. And part of his persona is, you know, a hedonism. Like a very and very frankly, like, hey, this feels good. Or him being in the bathroom and her knocking on the door and him being like, Daddy's shooting up now. You yeah. know? And we're open. We're we're honest in this house. Free but it's also conditioning. It's conditioning yes. you to not have boundaries and pushing them yes. further and further and further. And okay, so then we have to get to the Mick Jagger story, which <laughs> is such a complicated story because this is one of the few stories in the book where um she it, she, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, it's a very gonna, happy. It, it's, it's very it's happy. A, it's very. So when she's 18, she's hanging out with her dad and Mick Jagger and her dad is making tuna salad. And and they're high. They're all, and, yeah, they're all on. Yeah. They're all high. And then her dad goes upstairs. I think they're, are they in London? No, no. Her dad's okay. like, I want to make you my famous tuna salad. And Mick is like, yes. And they go to the kitchen and there's no mayonnaise. Yep. And Mackenzie writes, Thank God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, there was no mayonnaise. Because then Mick says to her dad, go upstairs and get some. Then he turns to her and he says, I've been waiting for this since you were 10 years old. And you guys, he's discussing having sex with her. They go and have sex. Her dad comes back in and is pounding on the door and is like, hey, guys, like, what are you doing in there? You know, she's like, dad, leave me alone. Like, I'm with Mick Jagger. And Mick's like, yeah, I'm, I'm having sex with your 18-year-old daughter. She is 18 in this story. But the pickup line yeah, is, I was waiting for like, this since you were 10. What? It's like, it would have been so easy to make that an okay thing to say. It was just like, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Then we can't yeah, imagine yeah. it's just Don't put months. an age on it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Why say since you were fucking 10? And like, 
again, and why were you she, looking at her like that at 10? The, well, and remember her dad saying Mackenzie's popping tits. Remember uh, that? Yeah. And she oh, tells yeah. that story and she's like, it was really gross. It was yeah. really embarrassing and gross. And there's some part of her, even as she's saying this Mick Jagger story, that must feel like that 10 year old thing is weird. You know what I mean? There's some right, tiny right. part or else why include well, that? And you know what story about Mick Jagger in this really got me? I don't know. It, it must be hitting like some button in me. But also when she's a kid, he teaches her how to do squats. And he's like, here's how you do squats. And he says, if you don't do this, like you'll get a flabby, like gross butt. Like you don't want a flabby, you know, old lady gross butt, like do squats. And there's just something like so, and, and I have moments like this in my own life where like some, I know a lot of people say Mick is hot, but for, for my purposes, some gross old dude is telling you as a woman how to be hotter, you know? And it's like- It's funny, of what? all the things that he did, it felt like he was just saying, your ass will be down. Like he was- he takes Looking his own medicine. Yeah, 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 but yeah, I guess that oh, one. Oh, it was you mean like, his own ass? Yeah, he wanted yeah, his ass to be. It felt like because right. then he was doing a million squats, and it was right. like, and then it in felt the like sex more story, his she's thing. like, yeah, she's like, he did have a great butt, like those squats yeah. he taught me how to do, and you're like, oh, this is like all tying up in like a very weird way. Oh yeah, and they're having sex in his and Jerry Hall's bed. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. there's just, but I also think it genuinely was a joyful experience for her. Yeah, so, which was nice to have yeah. that takeaway from, she had from great, this. But what's also crazy is, so she was 18 when that happened. Yeah. And what else happened when she was 18 is she got married, which is oh also... My oh my God, this is the same year. Yeah, it's differently measured in the book, so you don't associate the two. So I didn't. When he's knocking on the door and saying, let me in, like it kind of feels more like ah, you know, this party's gone on without me or like there's some sort of sense of like I'm fucking my, my friends. Salad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not the center of the attention is yes. actually what it felt like. Yeah, not that he was worried about her. And she says that in the book too. Yeah, and but also when she's 18, she's married. Can, can we skip to this part? I feel like yes. we keep fucking warning about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's get right to it. We're, we're, we're skipping a story where she calls Melanie Griffith to go help her mom, uh, which is like, and then like she mentions Melanie Griffith in a way where like they're no longer friends. Um, but but by the book for that story. So this this is your trigger warning. We're gonna get into it. It's there's a long convoluted story where uh, I won't get into the details, but she's with Peter Asher, who's gonna come back in this book, um, and. She's kind of bouncing between Peter Asher, who has just kind of left his wife, but was having an affair on his wife with Mackenzie for this guy, Jeff. Her brother's name is Jeff, but this is a different Jeff, obviously. And Jeff is so bad that when she leaves Peter Asher to be with Jeff, Peter Asher's wife calls her and says, don't be with Jeff to like, just have my husband, like go back to my husband. The other person who said, cause then they were like, we're going to get fucking married. Like he's a drug dealer. He's just yeah. like, that's, he's a drug dealer to the rich and famous. The other person who says don't marry him is Jeff's own mother. Yes. Which it's is like, like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, can you, I don't think you can call that a red flag. That is no. like a red tidal way that the, the earth has flooded with red water <laughs> and you yes. have decided to drown right. it. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Okay. So, so she's like, I'm going to marry Jeff in Florida. She's left Peter for this whim. And the person who comes down to stop her from marrying Jeff is her dad. And he brings her to her hotel, her, his hotel room. They do a ton of drugs and sh she passes out. 
when she wakes up, her dad is raping her. She was unconscious. She comes to, recognizes that her dad is having sex with her, um, raping her, and she blacks out. Um, before that, though, the, he's sharing a room with, like, whatever family friend named Bob or something. And she yeah. makes eye contact with Bob, who sees it. And the other thing that she says as she's describing this is, I'm not sure that this was the first time. Yeah. It's the first time I remember. Yeah. And I remember reading that and just being like, it wasn't, it wasn't. the first time. And she can't uh, harness this it. This guy but... was with a fucking 16-year-old. Yeah. You're, you're, your friends are sexualizing her at 10. This wasn't right. the first time. But yeah. it is the night before she got married. Well, and she, she did. She doesn't oh. get married that night. She gets married like a month later. Oh. Like he and does she, successfully pull it off for a night. And the thing that's amazing is she fully processed it as rape. Yeah. At the time. Yeah. And and told told people, told his sister, her aunt, who, who mm-hmm. was a aunt big Rosie. guardian for her. Yeah. She told her mom. And she conf- she confronts him the next time she sees him. And she yeah. says, we need to talk about what happened in Florida. And he says, what do you mean? And she says, when you raped me. And he said, oh, you mean when we made love? And that is pure John Phillips, where it's just yes. like a complete rewriting of everything. We and, talk about, it's beyond gaslighting. Yeah. And it's, also conditioning her to think it was, con- to think it's consensual later. He's reframing it. He's um, he's her dad telling her that what she thinks happened is not what happened and that it was actually them making love as if it's a fine thing to do. And also saying, you know, because it's not like, oh, now she's going to believe that that's what it was. But it does say, like, I'm not if you fucking make this something big, because I think there was even a, a moment of like, you can't press charges. It was like disgust. Because yeah. all it's going to do is bring it out in public. Well, and yeah. so much of this is about protecting his image. Yes. And I think that's part of it, too, is if it is framed like that for him, now you're protecting him from his own monstrousness, right? Yeah. You're like, yeah. oh, you see this as this kind of beautiful, fucked up thing. Right, of like, love knows no bounds versus this is incest and you raped your daughter. Yeah, and yeah. If, if and, you yeah. you get to make a choice, either the relationship ends here or this man that everybody literally craves to have a crumb from, you know, he Rewrites gets to, the story for you. Exactly. Yeah. And you're you're so right about her using the word rape. And it's interesting, too, because in the Oprah interview or maybe Larry King, I watched a bunch of interviews. She said, I just didn't have a word for it. Like, I I didn't know what word to use. So, like, I used the word rape. She almost kind of backtracks on it in the interviews. But it was correct because even when um, her sister China talks about it, she's like, I don't know that he raped her, but I do believe that it happened. And it's this language where it's like, okay, but if John Phillips had McKenzie, which you believe, that is rape. Like, that it just, it's rape. Um, and and she knows that she didn't want it and she knows she was blacked out. And so she's, she just innately knew, uses that word. And now we know to use that word. But I think at the time they would have been like, well, he had sex with her. It wasn't rape. As if that's like, a, you know, a possibility. Yeah, he shot her up, but he was also shot up. And yeah, it's right. so fucked. And it's, it's so, there. he is the son that has, is in the middle of their galaxy. Um, I'm going to read a paragraph that comes after this. Okay. 
So my father had sex with me, and when I came to next to Jeff the next morning, I saw nothing. I said nothing. I heard nothing. I felt nothing. I put it aside for the moment and went on. My marriage to Jeff didn't happen. Dad didn't stop it. I didn't take a stand either way. The notion just seemed to pass as impulsively as it had appeared. Bob and Dad and Jeff and I flew back to L.A. Jeff and I had sex in the lavatory of the first class section before we even took off because that is how we rolled. That's how, like, out of her body she is. Yeah, and I'm sure also you don't want the last person that you had sex with to be your dad. And also, there's that fucking guy, Bob, who witnessed it. What the fuck is going on, Bob? Also, I'm not going to get into it, but, like, the amount of time something fucked up happened and there was a third dude who was just looks away is, like, it's uh, too common. It's too common. The doctor. There's, like, a doctor who helps, (sighs) quote, unquote, her and her dad get clean. Not clean. Sober. I think there's a differentiation in the book between clean because clean in the book means off drugs. Yeah. And including this doctor, we're like, yeah, but you can drink alcohol, (laughs) which is no recovery expert would ever say say you could drink alcohol. Um, Okay. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, it's going to get more intense, not less. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William vs. Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life, and I can't believe it, but I got to write my own, and it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. So she does end up marrying Jeff. It's just like a month after she thought it was going to happen. On their honeymoon, 
her house catches on fire and burns to the ground, which which is like just she doesn't write like, oh, it was a sign. But I'm reading it being like, uh, this is a sign. When they come back, Jeff just gets more and more and more abusive. They're doing drugs constantly. He's spending all of her one day at a time money on the addiction. And she just got fired from one day at a time. Well, then she gets fired. Like, what, when she's married to him, like, it escalates yes. the addiction for so, so badly that it impairs her ability to show up on time. Um, she's not so, she's never sober on set and they fire her. And looking back, she says, I think they were trying to help me by cutting off the money. That was paying for the drugs, um, which she yeah. also just talks about. There's a very L.A. like she talks about all the ways that she self-sabotages, which are many. many. But she also includes like living in Malibu when you have a job yeah. in the valley. And I'm like, yeah, one million percent. That was a self-sabotage. Because right, also, you know, always hours late. <laughs> right. And like, again, like this is not how the brain works. But you're like, oh, I, I know I spend my time doing drugs. And so I want to sleep in. I, do, I don't want to come in late. Like, don't move two hours away. <laughs> Well, I felt like the Malibu thing was like, even if you're sober, don't fucking yeah, live in Malibu yes, exactly. if you need to work yes. in the valley. Yeah, truly. So this marriage with Jeff escalates for six months. It becomes so horrific. He never lets her out of the house until one day he is uh, he sends her out to buy drugs. And it's a rare time where he allows her to get in a car and leave. And she says, this is my chance. And she drives straight to her manager's office. And she says, get me out of this marriage, divorce him, cut him off, take take him off my accounts. And she escapes Jeff. Love Pat, her manager who helps her. Um, Pat's, Pat's the, best. the best. And But now she needs to go somewhere. She needs to escape this abusive marriage. She goes to her dad's. And so now she's moved back in with her dad, who is now married to a woman named Genevieve. And he teaches Mackenzie how to, I don't know if the ter- if I'm using the right term, to shoot coke. Like he's helping her. To use needles, basically, yeah, right? Yeah, and like how to cook it, how to, how to stick yourself and how to inject it. And she says, who do you turn to when you don't know how to um, inject? And she said, you go to daddy. And like... It wasn't that cute. Like, daddy was, like, tying off my arm and teaching me how to do it. And this household, she was like, there were, like, candy dishes of clean syringes. It was just like, because you need, she just describes it's like a clean syringe you need because it's the sharpest. When they get, if you use them more than once, they get dull. Dull. And she's like, also, this is the time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Makes scars. Which is still an actress and they're a Hollywood family. So the scars are like, you don't want people to see them. Yeah, that's <laughs> where it's like so much scarring. Like this is, it's amazing that she's more than scar tissue at this point. And I, I don't mean, I mean, her heart, like her heart, she, she has a really soft, sweet heart. And she clearly has, you know, so many friends and so many loves. Yeah. And it's amazing. But anyway, so there's, there's just clean syringes all through the house, like, Well, and then the story is so even more intense because she and Genevieve, her her husband's wife, do drugs. Dad's wife. Sorry, her husband. Jesus, that's I don't know about Freudian slip, but that was like, uh, yep, that that's a slip that makes sense in this. Her dad's wife. Yeah, I think girlfriend girlfriend. Genevieve is just yeah, uh, is pregnant, and she's six months pregnant, and she and Mackenzie do drugs together, and. They, there's this one night where they like split a pill and Mackenzie is passed out. And when she comes to her dad is there and says Genevieve gave birth to her younger sister Bijou on the couch. 
Um, and and I, and so Bijou Phillips, which this was very interesting because I actually only knew Bijou from, or I mostly knew her from the bullying story. A story came out um, that she was extremely homophobic to one of her co-stars in the movie not i'm this is the movie title the movie bully bijou was like very homophobic and hateful and body shaming and this actor came out and she said like i was young i was on drugs like i'm not like that anymore she's also married to danny masterson who came up in the um in the scientology episode with leah remini because he has also been charged with four accounts of rape and i think he's going to trial for them and this is bijou's birth story and and this is what she was born into. And so this was a, a light into how what led her to be the woman I had heard of. It's also wild that there is so much love for babies and children in this family. Yeah. Like he has another, like she is obsessed with her little sister Bijou. Oh, she loves like, obsessed. her. Yeah. And she's her rock in this book. Bijou like really helps Mackenzie. Yeah. And she's Bijou's rock when she's, when Mackenzie's sober, like it, th- there's an incredibly close connection there. Yeah, but China is really not in the book. And later in interviews, she talks about how she and China had an awful relationship. Um, well, so I'm going to read something. Um, she's talking about uh, Bijou. She said she has triumphed over incredible odds. Her story is her own, but my culpability is a part of it. I witnessed the dangers of Genevieve's pregnancy. I shot up with her. I was there, complicit, the night of Bijou's birth. My brother Tamerlane was about 10 years old. He and I shared a room at the hotel near the hospital. And while I prayed for our sister's survival from a drug-wrecked birth, I did coke in front of him many times. I had no sense of the hypocrisy in how much I loved my two younger siblings and how damaging my actions may have been to them. I watched them endure horrific parenting. I behaved irresponsibly in front of them. And later, I would make essentially the same mistakes with my own son. There are people in this world who do these things, and I was one of them. We all survived, but barely. And this is where I just love the book. There are people in this world who do these things, and I was one of them. And that is true, and people don't talk about this because there's no upside to revealing these things and being this honest people there is an upside there's a healing upside but people will be horrible to you but they are these real things and to talk about them and not pretend that they didn't happen is like such a gift for the world's understanding of these actions and especially a gift to anyone who can relate to them or lived through them themselves that mckenzie is saying i did these things and i'm Mm -hmm. i mean that's just huge yeah it's intense so then there's a photo section. <laughs> which, which it is a crazy book to have a photo section. It was, I mean, a part of me was torn. It's like, yeah, she's a whole person. This is her life story. Celebrities get photo sections. She gets a photo section. That said, you're like, oh no. And now I'm looking at photos of her and her rapist smiling, her father. Not one photo many photos like happy family photos after it's tough i wonder with the china stuff it feels like china is the one kid who got to be the furthest away from john it felt like michelle Mm. phillips was the best at having some boundaries with that man do you know what i mean because michelle was strong also michelle says that she doesn't believe mckenzie but china says she does believe mckenzie yeah yeah it's 
Yeah, it's really wild. But yeah. So there's Jeff, her brother, there's Tamerlane, there's Bijou. Like, there's all these siblings, and they all really fucking love each other. Yeah, they're a huge little family. I will also say someone sent me an interview with China and um, Chris Cuomo. Someone sent me an interview with China and Chris Cuomo, and I was not expecting it to be him. And she, I, 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 I'll post it. It is... He's like, so you're, you know, Mackenzie's book came out when your new album was released. You know, was that hard for you? And she's both like, I believe my sister and that's so positive. And either, I don't know what this decision is. Maybe she was like, but I'm still marketing my goddamn album because he's like, you know, what do you think of this? And she's like, you know, it reminds me of a song of mine that on my new album. And then she's like, Jesus da, 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 sings to him for like a minute. And she's like, so that's yeah. my feelings on Mackenzie with my new hit song. And I was like, oh, my God. You know what? Good for fucking you. Good for Yeah, but you. it was also, it's very, very Jesus. Uh, that's where China has found her salvation. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, someone needs to help us out. If it's Jesus, like, get on in there. If, yeah, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if this she is your She seems childhood? like the one who's the most okay. And she's married to a Baldwin. And Oh, mel- married to a Baldwin. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, I also just want to read one caption in the photo section. It's a picture of her with um, her mom and her brother and her son, Shane. And the caption of this photo is Mackenzie to me in a, in a, a just auto puts a point on it. The caption is, me, Shane, mom, Jeffrey, May 2008, three months before my arrest. Shane is so handsome. (laughs) That's it. That's the book. Um, And she loves her son. Okay, so we're going to skip a lot. Her dad gets arrested. He's going to, he could be a felon. He could go to jail for many years. So he goes on a press tour of getting sober. And he brings Mackenzie into this press tour kind of like a dad helping his daughter and this duo that have struggled with drug abuse, rehabilitating. And it works. They're on covers of magazines and it cleans up his image and they get shit-faced on the way to jail. They get shit-faced when she picks him up from jail and he needs money now and he forms the new mamas and the papas. Yeah, and he ends up only being convicted for 30 days and it could have been decades, yeah. I will also say like, uh, like... That was fucking yeah, infuriating. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's it's like, a lot of privilege of people getting off. And even when she finally does get busted for cocaine, she's like all these other times that she was caught yeah. and the cops let her off. Oh, yeah. So much privilege that comes with them being white, having money, having fame. And being famous. Like, yeah. yeah, the fame, all of it, having press. So, yeah, so he could have gone to jail for 30 years. He goes to jail for a month. They they do go to rehab and stop using drugs for a short amount of time. But like Tammy said, they were like, you don't need to do drugs because you're addicted to drugs, but you're not addicted to alcohol, so drink all you want. So they um, they get drunk constantly, and she forms she misuses alcohol, and that becomes an abusive problem. And then they need money. Her dad reforms the band, but, you know, the original members aren't all available. So Mackenzie joins the band. And... And, you know, I think both mamas are not available. Michelle, because she's having a real life and Mama Cass died 
died. Yeah. And then, yeah, John and whoever the other papa was. Right. And so, but what's crazy is that, you know, because of the press around Mackenzie and and her addiction, she can't get a lot of acting work. But her manager, Pat, says, do not join this band where you will never get your career back. And so her dad says, fire Pat. I don't like her. Pat, who's been with her since she was a kid, who has gotten her through so many things, including getting out of that abusive marriage. Stood by her when she's getting fired for the way she's behaving on set. And and this is where it really shows what a perpetrator her dad is, because he starts isolating her from anyone who can help her but him. And she says she loved Pat, but she did what her dad said. She always did what her dad said. So her dad said fire her, so she does. And she joins this band. This becomes... Her life, touring with this band that she had watched as a kid and wanted to be a part of. Now she is. Now she's on the road with her dad every night. This is how she makes her money. He became even the bigger figure because it's like working on these four-part harmonies for hours and hours. Now he's even more somebody to please. And she says, I'm getting what all the kids wanted and what I always wanted. I'm getting my dad's attention. I found this way to get it. Yeah. Now, we're going to be skipping this. There are stories of her being kidnapped. There's more rapes. There's uh, more body shaming. And now she's on the road doing drugs. Her dad is her drug dealer and her boss and her salary and her bandmate. And she's and her rapist. And she's constantly waking up half naked in her dad's bed. And it escalates and escalates. And I want to read I want to read a page that describes this time. The first time it happened back in Florida, I felt raped. That event stood alone. Many years passed before he touched me again. But as the isolated encounters added up, I could no longer tell myself that I was having sex with my father against my will. It was consensual, but not in the way one might imagine consensual sex. It didn't happen daily or weekly. It wasn't planned or discussed. And it most certainly wasn't romantic or real. We didn't walk around holding hands. Sex with my father was never anything but an occasional act of drug-fueled desperation, a hopeless grasp at comfort and security in a daze of hell. Which she later learns, like, even though she thought it was her choice, it was not. Like, a parent-child relationship can never lead to consensual sex it was always rape and that is the coolest part of the book is like how much um, knowledge and information comes to everyone and then comes to her and then she adds this postscript about realizing um what this relationship actually was when she was holding on to the fact of like oh i did it i chose this even here where she was like i mean it's not consensual with the way you're thinking it the way she describes it it's hell hell it's literal hell but she's still like she's still in the book is like It was 10 years of on and off having this horrible fucking sexual encounters with shooting up with her fucking dad. Yeah. And then feeling the shame of being complicit in it. And in the meantime, she gets married. She has a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We haven't even talked about that. She's she's currently married while this is going on when she's on the road. Yeah, to a great guy, this guy, Mick, who's... Um, all right, let's get to Mick in a second. I want to read one more page. And, and especially anyone yeah. listening, if this is hitting home in any way, this is something to listen to. He wasn't a good father, but he was a musical genius. And the truth about our relationship doesn't change that. But these are the reasons that people are silent about incest. Conflicted but deep love for the perpetrator. The desire to protect the family. The fear of what the revelation will do to one's own reputation. If nobody ever rocks the boat, if real stories of love and incest and survival are kept behind closed doors of therapist's offices and judges' chambers, then current and future victims are destined to do what I did. 
to weather it alone, to blame themselves, to hide behind drugs or whatever other lies and oblivion they can find. It happens. It happened to me. And the desire to preserve my father's legacy is not reason enough for silence. What's wild is that so many people in her family knew. She told them. Yeah. Like she told Years Bijou when Bijou was 14. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, and it's funny, like, you know, part of sobriety is a sort of cleaning up the wreckage of your past. It's not telling everybody, but it is telling somebody, right? Yeah. It, you, you take an is inventory of, of your life. Is that one of the steps or like, is that something yeah, they yeah. teach you? Yeah, it's a step, right? There's 12 steps and I think it's the fourth step made a searching and fearless inventory. And, and then the fifth step is to tell one other person. Wow. You know, it doesn't even say, and it can be, it it it, 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 it can be a clergy person. It can be your sponsor. It can be a friend. It could be somebody that you fucking meet on a plane, but have it be somebody safe because there is a real power in saying it out loud yeah. and letting it go. Yeah. And, and then the following steps are about, you know, making amends and stuff, but like to have this horrible secret, right? This secret that is somehow, she she has so many secrets. She's shooting up and freebasing while she's pregnant with her son, you know? But to have this secret that you really feel like there is no fucking way anybody can handle this, and that is that I have had sex with my father as an adult, and it's happened more than once, and I didn't scream and run out of the room. Like, that's, and I do think it hurts your sobriety. So, like, the times that she does get sober, like there's one point where she gets sober, right? And she is sober and her father is dying. And it's just so much of the life is just protecting John Phillips, yeah. everybody's life. Yeah. So he got a liver, I'm sorry, I'm totally skipping ahead. No, please. But this is, he got a liver transplant and- Which also dr- like, you don't deserve that liver. <laughs> I know that's not for me to say, but like, my God, because he immediately starts using again. Yeah, and and drinking, and there's photographs of him drinking, and it's really public that he fucking abused. Somebody died. Because there are people who don't get liver transplants. One million percent. One million percent. So then when he starts to die of liver failure, it becomes this huge secret because it's a liver that he got and immediately started to abuse. And she says, I couldn't go to my recovery groups anymore because... I would have to share about this. And it was a secret. And it's funny because that's a, did you, did you catch that? That was a real thorny thing where I was like, huh, you could have (laughs) gone. Right. The whole point is like, you could, you could have found people where it's safe to say that to and would keep it a secret. But it was like, once again, it's like in her head, it's choosing her dad over her, Sobriety. Well, and Mackenzie makes uh, a million decisions in this book that make you go, no, no, that's bad. I don't like that. It, yeah, it like, recoils you the from last her. third. Yeah. yeah, where you're like, ugh. But every time it happens, it's, well, th- this woman was put on drugs when she was 10, raped multiple times, and her father rapes her. You know, th- that, those are things. Oh, yeah. You have so much you sympathy not, for her. Yeah, but also, yeah, and more than some understanding of, of cause, yes. but I think not knowing that. You look at someone, you go, what are you doing? Why do you keep messing up? Yeah. Like, why can't you get it together? Why do you care about your son? Why do you do drugs while you're pregnant? But that's not understanding the addiction and the trauma and all the stuff she's going through. And so 
real quick, she married a man named Mick. Um, she got pregnant with her son, Shane. The addiction was so strong that she was doing cocaine throughout. She was shooting up coke throughout the pregnancy. Um, and and I thought that was also incredible that she admitted and talked about it. I mean, there's yeah. just so much judgment, especially when you're a mother. But she's, yeah. th- that's the thing, though. That's the addiction. Addiction overrides logic, empathy, compassion, brain power. Like, that's yeah. why it's addiction. And so a lot of things happen. She's on the road with her dad. The, the incest is escalating. Her dad gets her pregnant. The person who takes her to get an abortion is her dad's girlfriend, Sue Blue. Um, this is all happening. And then things get so bad that Mick finally says, you have to go to rehab. She goes to rehab for nine months when her son is four. It's it's incredibly difficult. She writes all about it. The rehab is insane. It, it's the cruel. Rehab it's a is, cruel rehab, right? It's not. <laughs> it's its own philosophy. Like there's some stuff that sounds like AA. And then there's some stuff that's like, you're not allowed to speak. You have to write things down. The response will be written to you. You have to wear your hair in a bun. You can't dress the way you dress. Yeah. And the idea was that like you make bad decisions and you always will. And you're never allowed to make a decision without our help because like you're diseased that, which is like a very (laughs) insane way to look at addiction. It's yeah. It's wild. Yeah. It's wild. And it's funny because some people think the 12 step programs are cults. And you're like, oh, this actually was kind of culty. Right. Like you're But ch- it gets her sober. It does get her sober. It does, it does work. But she later says, so okay, so we'll get to it. But that program, very intense. So she's in remission. She has her sobriety. She becomes the rock to her family and all these siblings we've been talking about for 10 years. Christmases are at her house. She wasn't there for her son before, but is completely there for him now. Um, Becomes, you know, very involved in his life. She gets on the Disney show So Weird. And she says, you know, when she was on One Day at a Time, she was never showing up. She was always high. She was like not a good, responsible individual. And on So Weird, she got to be like the model actor she always wanted to be. And uh, that's 10 years of her life until her dad dies. I think even 15, possibly. Oh, maybe 15. Uh, A long time. A long, long, long time. Can I just say one of the things that I found so sad? Please. So actually, she and Mick didn't get married then. Right? That's right. <laughs> they actually got married after they broke up. And so Mick was with her. And she always talks about what an amazing dad he is. But they didn't break up until she got sober and came back. And it was so sad the way she describes. Um, okay. <laughs> Mick and I tried to make our relationship. Okay, so, so she, he had known me. It, it was the first time I had known myself sober. When one member of a couple gets sober and the other doesn't need to, it's as if you're navigating a whole new relationship. Mick and I tried to make our relationship work. We really did, but we were on different paths. Mick had fallen in love with me and all my quirkiness. He'd always been quiet, soft-spoken, and spiritual. After our son was born, he'd grown up a lot. He stopped smoking, drinking, and using. Mick stuck with me through my addiction, but now that I was sober, my true self was evident. I'm always talking, singing, making jokes. This wasn't a huge change, but he started to grate on him. He got cranky. Cliché as it sounds, Mick and I were growing apart. So it's also the one time she fucking shows her true self to somebody. 
they break up with her. That really didn't hit me when I was reading it. I kind of assumed like, oh, it was all the stuff that happened before. But you're right, because she finally does the thing he'd been asking for. And they get married afterwards because he is from London. And they want their son to have a dual passport and there's or citizenship in both places. And there's a better chance of that if you're married. So they get married as friends. <laughs> and then she says, we're such close friends that when they later get other partners, they have to stop being friends because it's like hurtful to their relationship. And it was like just the lack of it just again, like there's this weird like she never no falls out of love. Yes. And yeah, there's just and it sounds also like Fluid. that's what it happened in that family. Like. People never broke up. People were never gone forever. Totally. And also, one other thing to call out is that throughout the book, almost every relationship Mackenzie is in, she's starting as the mis- the mistress. There's there's uh, she's with men who always have partners, almost always. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, wow. a- almost every single time. And when she, when she's talking about Mick. Um, she says, you know, they're having this affair on the road and then Mick's wife shows up and attacks her in her t- hotel room. And she says, she put Peter Asher's wife to shame. And like, I get being upset, but this was too far. And I'm like, okay, Mackenzie, <laughs> I don't think we get to like draw the line at like how mad the wife gets to be. And she was comparing it to Jerry Hall and all these other wives who'd been mad at her and was like, this one was the worst. And it's like, okay, <laughs> this is a real bummer part of the book. Yeah, again, it's like somebody who never valued themselves enough to be the main person, right? Right. So it's or also somehow feels like like it's more valuable if I win him away from somebody. And I feel like, well, that's her fucking dad. Their marriage is not sacred. My marriage is not sacred. Anything is fluid. Like I don't yeah, have respect yeah. for lines and boundaries. Yeah. Um, okay, so She's sober for a long time, then her dad dies, and she relapses. She says, I can't blame my relapse on my father, nor can I blame it on his death. I was a mother, a sister, a daughter, a homeowner. I'd been I'd been trying to be everything to everyone. I came out of the lodge trying to be a superwoman. I took on infinite responsibilities, but forgot who I was and what I needed. And then later she says, uh, I, I was the rock of my family. When my father died, it rained hard, and the rock turned out to not be a rock at all. It was a square of gray paper folded into the shape of a rock. When it rains, the rock all but disintegrated. I was just a thin, folded paper pretending to be a person. <sighs> and so it also, this is the other fucking crazy things she's acting again she's back in hollywood and she gets a boob job she's killing it she's getting like nypd blue and chicago hope and like she's fucking but then she's like i'm aging i'm gonna get a boob job i'm gonna get a thigh tuck when she does and comes out of those surgeries as you know big boobs are are painful she immediately is diagnosed with scoliosis and chronic back pain from this boob job i was like this is jesus christ she starts walking with a cane She's having so much pain that someone prescribes her Oxycontin and she takes it. And that's the start of the relapse, which escalates and escalates and escalates until she's doing uh, speedballs. So she's doing heroin and cocaine at the same time. There's so many stories we're skipping, but this is all working out until, as Tammy said, she uh, gets she tries to take drugs on the plane to do a one day at a time reunion. These people who she's let down over and over again, <laughs> then got sober for 10 yeah. years, got back into Valerie Bertinelli's life, who also has a book oh, I want to cover. The relationship with Valerie Bertinelli is the fucking sweetest thing. Oh my God, it is. And Valerie even cuts her off for a long time and, and Mackenzie really has to earn her way back into Valerie's life. And, and the it's way she beautiful, does it's beautiful when she does. I know. Valerie 
Bernilli was married to Eddie Van Halen, but just sounds like the sweetest, most wholesome. I know. And she has a book too, and Casey St. Ange recommended it to me, and I hope to have that book on the podcast. Um, but yeah, okay, so she's gonna, you know, she 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 kind of earned her way back into these people's lives and now on her way to meet them for a reunion, she gets arrested at the airport for the drugs she's trying to smuggle through. And I, I this is something I have to call out. Um the only, the only ethnicity noted in this entire book is that the cop who arrests her is a Latin American woman. And she says, like, oh, she was so nice and sweet. And it's just like, but I just have to give a quick PSA. And I think I might have to give it multiple times. Um, if you call out someone's ethnicity, you better be describing everyone's ethnicity. Because otherwise you're saying, like, white is neutral white like you assume everyone is white and then you call out other people's ethnicity and another carly simon's book did this and it was, it was kind of like the one big fault in her book is that there are two women whose ethnicity she writes of and then but never calls out when someone is caucasian never describes it and it really really fucking annoys me and i got to this part of the book and i was like why why you have not described a sim- single human before this moment. And it also it makes you be like, Jesus, is everybody you hang out with fucking white? I think the answer is yes. Yeah, <laughs> just definitely also, yes. You can see, like, she's like, no, but I said really nice things about her. And it's yeah. like, yeah, uh-huh. that doesn't make it right. I will say this. This is not just, like, solo to this book. Like, I have read scripts oh, where this happens, where you're like, what? 100%. Where you're like... They're like, no, it's good because I want to make sure to cast uh, somebody black in this part. And it's like, bitch, the fucking whole pilot could be somebody black. Like, yeah. what? why is the, <laughs> yeah. you just said the lead is white? Right. And why? Why are they like, why? I just think it's just this thing of like, why is it important? And I think if you ask yourself that question, you'll find out that it's it's not. And it's for a fucked up reason that you've written it. Like, yeah, it's yeah, just it's, it's very it's just fucking annoying. perpetuating norms that need to stop being perpetuated. Yeah, and I it didn't make it into the Carly Simons podcast episode, so I just really have to say it here, but she had three instances in that book that were the same thing, where she was like, it was Mick Jagger, actually. She was like, I wanted to be with Mick Jagger, but he was really into this black woman, and and she was so beautiful, and you're like, why did you just... Yeah. You didn't call out when Mick was fucking a white woman, whatever. And then she, she has a few of those things, and then also with uh, the woman James Taylor cheats on is Japanese, and she really discusses that. So... Anyways, PSA, pass it on. Okay. Before Mackenzie's dad died, she forgave him. She also speaks highly of him and a lot of the people reading the book. And I found the stuff she wrote about forgiveness to be really, I hated it until uh, until the end of the book. And then I found it to be incredible and deeply moving. What was your experience with it? It's funny because you're like, she forgave him and he never fucking apologized Oh, he didn't even acknowledge there was something to be forgiven for. He just put his head on her shoulder. Yeah, there's one thing that he said that was like, giddy up donkey or whatever, when she said she was going to go to Aspen for something. And at first he said, fuck you, like you can't leave me. And she stood up to him and said, yeah. And also what you need to say is good for you. And then he said, like, giddy up donkey. I don't remember what he said. He said some kind of nonsense, but she was like, but in that tone... I could tell there was regret just, and no, it was just like, no. um, you want there to be regret. I know. But then the way that she, oh, this was it. Um, 
so he did say, she said, what I want, okay, no, you're not going to do this again. The time for you to rule my emotions is over. You can't destroy me with a word or a look, not anymore. What I want you to say is, I love you, Max, have a good trip. He looked at me with his tired eyes and said, I love you, Max, have a good trip, a little like a reluctant teenager obeying his parent. I said, that's more like it, Pops. And then he said, hey, Laura Bug, you dropped your bag on the floor. Don't forget it. There was what? (laughs) Yeah, there was nothing to the words themselves, but in his voice, in the tone and the way he said it, there was an apology. No, the regret and love I'd always known was there, but it so desperately needed to hear. You 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 dropped dropped your your bag bag on the floor? What? I mean, do you see what I was like? Giddy up, little dog. It was just like she wants him. She wants to. She wants. So the people to hear that he apologized, even though he didn't. Um, okay, I'm gonna read. I want to read the part that hit me. It was, as I've said, a hard decision to reveal the sordid side of my relationship with my father. But these are the complex, painful, heart wrenching truths that infiltrate lives, many lives, not just mine. I can't be the only one, and I needed to tell that part of the story because I wanted to earn the right to talk about forgiveness, which I thought was so uh, incredible and. She, because she has to ask for forgiveness in this book. There's a lot of things she does to her son, to people she loves, to herself. And so she learns forgiveness for her father so that she can ask for forgiveness from others for the things that she did, which is, it's just, it's so difficult, but it's, it's so cool how she, and and again, like, I don't even fully understand her forgiveness for her father, but I love that she started this conversation. And the relief that she felt yes. when she felt that forgiveness. Yes. It's like, oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. She said, I want to say to those who are, who relate to my experiences, forgiveness is not to give the other person peace. Forgiveness is for you. Take the opportunity. Which, yeah, the freedom. And people spoke out uh, against her after the book. They say horrible things to her. And the Larry King interview, he's constantly being like, yeah, but you're on drugs, right? So like maybe you're a liar and this didn't happen. Nothing. She's kind of having to acknowledge like, yes, I was, but like this did happen. And in the book, um, she says, how, how am I going to face people on the street? You just do it. If you have a sense of humor about it, you can make other people laugh about it too. I feel brave about going out into the world and owning who I am. If I let the past define me, I would live in shame and regret. Instead, like my brother Jeffrey, I live in what is happening. I'm finally free of the negative effects of my past. Because she tells people that she, that that she and her father were had the incest happen, and then she has to face people on the street, and she does. And she sounds happy. Whether she's still disassociated or not, she's happy, and that's pretty incredible. So I had the really good fortune of meeting her and working with her oh a few gosh. years ago. And I really regret not bringing up that I'd read the book. Yeah. Because I read it in 2009, and I met her in 2018, I want to say. Yeah. She was on How I Met... Oh, Jesus. No, it was Orange is the New Black, a very different show. And she <laughs> she had a real arc on the show. She was in a bunch of episodes. She And she had to play... And I saw her audition. Like, she auditioned for it. She was yeah. wonderful. And it's funny, she had, like, you know, Hollywood teeth, and they had to fuck them up. And she, like, even made a joke of, like, oh, man, I worked so hard to, like, buy these teeth. But yeah, it's yeah. not at all, like, there's definitely actors who are, are like, please don't do that. And she was thought it was hilarious. She was totally on board. Yeah. And I was there when she had to um, 
it was just beautiful. It was just beautiful. She, I was there when she had to uh, OD, fake OD, and then like detox, you know, in this prison bed. And it was, she was just wonderful. She was just like exactly who you want to have on set. Just yeah. like beyond talent, just somebody who's just a real goodness and a real... The light in her is strong. Yeah. And you can tell she has like so much love to give. That is so nice to hear. This is the end of the the book, you guys. And there's a, a postscript that, that we'll talk about. But the very end of the book is, I'll just read the last sentence. She had gone, after she basically um, relapses and, and gets arrested, she she goes and, and gets into remission again and gains her so- sobriety back. And starts living her beautiful, happy life again. And this book is written while she's in remission. She says, at last I am living the health and happiness I've always described, but never experienced. I'm living my life instead of watching it happen. I'm free. Which, that's like the best last two words of the book. Um, And then what you want for her and I mean, I this it was two in the morning when I finished this. There were times when I felt like I was going to puke. There were times when I was crying. There was I mean, times the when- last 60, 70 pages where she is just in the depths of her addiction again and just the the spiritual and physical bottom that she is like scraping the floor after, yeah, this really wonderful sobriety, time in sobriety. And then it's so bad. She's yeah. like living, she's moved in these drug dealers oh, who she, are her she friends moves her drug dealers into and they her live house. with them for years and like even just yeah. talking about getting them out of her house it's like she had to convince them to fucking yeah. finally move out she's such a softy oh yeah yeah and 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 to pull herself out again after yeah. already doing what's and then she goes to a different rehabilitation who instead of teaching you like you're powerless to this disease that is addiction they teach her you have the power to heal yourself and you're you you are a person who can overcome this and she says you know that one worked a little better for me and reading yeah. it i was like yeah i fucking bet <laughs> um which I also love too. It's like, yeah, there's more than one path to sobriety than yeah. twelve step. There just is. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. And and finding the path that works for you. Um, yeah. So I I really recommend this book if any of these issues are speaking to you and you're ready to read about them. Um, she doesn't spare a detail. Um, and I also found I I uh, I found it extremely helpful in thinking about people in my life who've who've lived with addiction things like this and she really lets you into her head and what she's thinking at the time and it really brings a lot of empathy to it um okay so with every podcast we give a thank you to the author so uh for mine i wanted to read something she wrote in the postscript added to the book in 2011 thank you for sending this to me tammy i'm reading a photograph on my phone (laughs) she said um The drug addictions were so visibly damaging that I had to face them eventually. But my history with my dad was invisible. I felt ruined, but I tried to compartmentalize the shame and the guilt. It seemed like something I could box up and put away. I had so many other challenges. To add Survivors Anonymous to my list seemed overwhelming. Now I feel like part of that community. Mine isn't just the story of a drug addict or an incest survivor or an actress or a mother. It's all these things combined. It's one person's story, but it's also a universal story. 
Elements of my story happen to men, women, and children everywhere. The players might be unique, jigsaw puzzles differently configured, but we, or people we know, are living the same nightmares. My introduction to fellow survivors came online, and I felt immediately welcomed. They thanked me for having the courage to speak on behalf of a group that feel like they don't have a voice. They found strength and hope in my story, as I have in theirs. One woman said, you didn't ask for an army, honey, but you got one now. And, um, oh, I teared up. Yeah, <laughs> it gave me chills. It gave me I, chills. Yeah, I, I, uh, in, in the way I can relate to something like this is, um, when Christine Ford came forward about, uh, now Judge Kavanaugh and spoke about her assault, uh, the hearing was so hard for me. I felt like triggered every day. I had to be at work and it, I was going through a really hard time, but women came forward in droves online in that moment to talk about their experiences. And uh, I remember making a post on Instagram and so because I wanted to support her and I wanted to join in with everyone, but I couldn't get the words out of my mouth. But what I, I, I could articulate is that at the time is that I, I kept my stuff hidden because I was ashamed. I thought it was me and my ugly life and I should cover it up so people wouldn't think I was weird. And when you suddenly realize, as I did, that you're not alone and that it's not my problem, but it's our problem and there's lots of us to fight it together and it is a problem, but like you're not alone in it. That's when I first really began my journey to start to try and begin to heal, which is the journey you hear about on this podcast all the time. <laughs> and, um, I think McKinsey's book started that journey for a lot of incest survivors and former drug users. And I just like, can't think of like a more beautiful gift to give and like thinking of that, like army around her. I just like make, now I'm crying again. Like <laughs> how incredible to share this thing that you, like you said, people shouldn't be able to even take it and they could take it and they could be her community. Yeah. And especially in that postscript, you know, she talks about Bijou, like not being there and cutting yeah. her out of her life. And yeah. and her brother, too, and how painful that is. And you know how painful that is because you've seen how much they mean to her throughout this book. And how they helped her to get sober. They really cared about her time until and she went again. against their father. Yeah, and they knew this about her father. They knew it. It was yeah. the going public that yes. they couldn't take. And, and Bijou told her this, you're going against everything dad taught us. Yeah. And Mackenzie said, yeah, he taught us to hide this for him. Yeah, and then... The fact that you see, coupled with this terrible sacrifice she made, that she got these enormous gifts from publishing this. It's, like, really special. Yeah. And she said in the postscript, like, yeah, you can be afraid of the backlash, losing family members, things like that. But it is worth it. Yeah. And it's worth it. And it's worth it to be free. Yeah. And the thing, with, too, with, like, Valerie Bertinelli was there for the Oprah thing. And yeah. she didn't know what she was going to hear. But also, like, thank God she was there because Mackenzie talks about, like, looking out into the audience and just, like, women just being like, what? And Valerie Bertinelli saying, I love you more. Like, I, I just feel like I... Now I actually understand you. And it... Uh, so I want to thank her for her grace and her honesty and just like, and her generosity. It's a real generous spirit to put this out there. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Tammy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Um, do you want people to find you on Twitter? Would you like to plug anything? <laughs> any any parting words? What is your photo section to add to this dramatic episode? Oh, <laughs> uh. 
I, I got nothing. Yeah, no, it's totally fine. I got nothing. That's fine. You know, totally fine. <laughs> um, Tammy, I love you. I adore you. Thank I you for bringing you. me this book. I would not want to do this with anyone else. I can't believe that I was so gleeful when I first suggested it. I was like, you don't know the secret. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. I love dark memoirs. They are my favorites. They're not for everyone, but this book was for me. Awesome. Well, love you. Love you. Bye. That's all for this week's episode. That was a tough one, you guys, but I loved doing it with Tammy. She's just so smart and incredible um, and brought so much to it. And also, I discovered from one of the cookies, Emily, that Mackenzie Phillips has a podcast talking about sobriety and recovery called America Recovers. And I listened to an episode with her and Carney Wilson, and I thought it was just fantastic. So check that out if you're looking for more information on Mackenzie or sobriety or anything like that. Thank you so much to everyone who wrote a review of this podcast. Not only do I love reading them, but they really help me out to let um, to let the podcast company know that we should keep doing this podcast and keep supporting it and hopefully make more seasons and do more books. So that helps so much. Thank you. And you can rate us in the app. You can also find me on Instagram at Chelsea Devantes, where I will be posting an entire visual story that goes with this week's book. And also I'm always on the Facebook group, Celebrity Book Club Podcast. And if this episode um, made you want to connect with others or you had something to say or feedback, go to the Facebook group. You can start a conversation there and it's a really great, smart, empathetic, incredible community I found of people who can really connect with, with deeper issues and also discuss celebrities and all that cool stuff too. I could not do this podcast without our amazing team here at Stitcher, executive producer Daisy Rosario, producer Brandon Nix, and associate producer Corinne Wallace. If you want to listen to an ad-free episode of Celebrity Book Club, you can only do that with Stitcher Premium. And if you want a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code BOOKS. B-O-O-K-S. Promo code BOOKS. And thank you guys so much for everything. I will see you on the Facebook group, and I will see you for next week's episode.